We love stories, movies, and plays with a good hero. We move forward in our seats, we sit up in our reading chairs when the hero enters the scene. More than that, we love a hero that is the underdog. When that famous movie came out many decades ago, when that small-time boxer, Rocky Balboa, went to face the heavyweight champion of the world, Apollo Creed, Apollo towered over the small-time boxer. No one was cheering in their seats as they watched that movie for Apollo. Everyone was cheering on Rocky. Why? Because we love underdogs because we often see ourselves as the underdog. We often find ourselves up against bullies. Bullies of the world, the schoolyard bullies, seem to follow us into the workplace, into the neighborhood, maybe even into our own homes. As we find ourselves up against them, we feel weak, we feel powerless, so desperate to win that we are frenzied with the hope that maybe that underdog will win. Maybe today I'll have some small victory. But while we might fantasize to be the hero of even our own stories, the truth is we rarely find the courage to fight. How often are you, you know, maybe scrolling through your phone or reading a newspaper article and you are drawn to the story about the hero, the one who rushed into the burning building to save a life? Or the one who jumped into the flowing river to rescue someone who was drowning. The problem is, while we might in our minds think, yeah, I would do the same if I was in a similar situation. The truth is, we are often immobilized, unable to move. We consider ourselves too weak, too afraid to even start to fight so we live vicariously through these heroes, whether they're on the screen or in books or in place. We often have the question, where does courage come from? Where does courage come from? Where, where do those who leap into these situations with such heroism, with such death-defying courage, where does it come from? How are they able to do it? This morning we're coming to a story that is known beyond Christianity, beyond Judaism, as a well-known story. In fact, I, I bet if you talk to some of your non-Christian friends, they would at least know some of the details of the story of David and Goliath. The story of David and Goliath is a classic hero story where the, the runt, the, the underdog, goes up against the giant and wins. So we think about the, the story that for so many is so well known. We have to ask ourselves this question. Where did David get the courage to fight Goliath? 
But what was it about David that made him so different from the tens of thousands of troops that that stood and listened to Goliath's chants? What was it that was so different about this man that we call David? Well, friends, if you're joining with us this morning, we have been over the last number of months studying through 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is often only known for this one particular story. Maybe a few others like Saul's encounter with the witch at Endor and others like them. But really it's this story that's, that makes 1 Samuel really ever on your reading list. And most of us don't really encounter it. But So I wanted to take us to it because there's so many great themes to think about in our story. As we saw last week, David has just been anointed king through a private ceremony with his dad and his, his other seven brothers in his town of Bethlehem. The prophet Samuel has come and anointed him as a replacement. The smallest and youngest of the sons of Jesse, David was really just an unexpected choice. He was really kind of came out of nowhere. We learn through the text, however, that God does not make decisions the way man does. We consider the otherness of God, the the strangeness in the way God acts, the, the way that God operates is so different from the way that we often God is described in this passage as one who is looking for a man after his own heart. Which means that God wanted a king that followed him, that obeyed him. See, many years earlier, the Israelites had, had wanted a king. They wanted to be like the world around them. And so God obliged them. He gave them a king. He gave them a king just like the world. It looked good on the outside. That kept up appearances. That was wealthy and rich. A king... That the people wanted. And God did this to show them the king that they really needed. Saul failed to be king because, not because he was rich or because he looked good. That's not what prevented him. The problem was, was Saul. See, Saul only listened to himself or those who gathered around him. He rarely listened to God. He rarely obeyed God's word. He, he thought that obeying God 90% of the time was enough. As we saw a few weeks ago, God demands 100% obedience, not just 99% obedience. Well, before us, we see the story unfolding as King David arises to the throne. And as we see God put forth his king, his choice, the reader is left with the question, what kind of king will David be? Will David be just like Saul? Will, Will he follow his own wisdom, his own his own ingenuity? Or will David prove to be the king that Israel truly needed? A king that would be used by God to deliver his people from their enemies. Friends, my prayer is as I read this story to you this morning, that it would just come across your minds in a fresh way. That this Holy Spirit would allow your eyes to see this text in a clear way this morning. That you may worship and honor him. Well, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel in chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to pull that pew Bible out in front of you and to turn to page 239. Page 239. Look for that big number 17 at the bottom of the page. 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokol, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokol and Ezekiah and Ephesh Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up battle line against the Philistines. 
And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the, height of his, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of a bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. And a shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of the three sons who went, with, who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shemaiah. David was the youngest. And the three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistines came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commanders of their thousands. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and them, excuse me, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were gallied, gathered, in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? 
And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for, your, for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defiled the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. He tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's palace. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. for He was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed God. David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David rose and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded fell in the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem he took his armor to his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. 
And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Well, as we consider this story before us this morning, I've done my best to summarize it in the shortest way. To consider a long passage like that, its various parts, what's the point? Trust that God alone can save and alone for his glory. The point of this story is to encourage trust that God can save and does so for his glory alone. And so our story is meant to encourage us to find hope in God's victory over our greatest enemy. And the question for us before us to to sort of think about and a way to kind of approach this text is in a question, how do you trust that God alone can save and alone for his glory? So as you sit in your pews, you think about the the giants that maybe are before you, so we, we think about those, the enemy before you, how in the midst of the battle of life do you trust that God can save? I think the text outlines for us three ways. Three steps, I think would be better. Three steps to trusting God. First, recognize your great enemy. Recognize your great enemy. Second, remember your God is greater. Remember, your God is greater. And third, rest in your Savior's victory. Recognize your great enemy. Remember your God is greater. Thirdly, rest in your Savior's victory. This is going to be a very summarized version of this text. We're not going to have time to really look at all the intricate details of the text, but, but we will not neglect the text. And we want to consider first the exhortation to recognize your great enemy. Oftentimes, and even in your Bible here, you'll see at the top a heading, David and Goliath. But this story isn't really about David and Goliath. This story is more about David and Saul. And more than that, it's about God. So if you were to say, take it, primarily this text is about God. Secondarily, this text is about David and Saul. And then thirdly, David and Goliath. Why I say this text is more about David and Saul than it is about David and Goliath is because the narrator is setting you up to pay attention not so much to Goliath, though we should do that, but to pay attention to how Saul reacts to Goliath. You have really a confusing world. Two kings leading one people. Which king are you going to follow? King Saul or King David? Well, the text is meant to encourage the reader to say, I'm going to follow King, King David. Because King David is the one who is going to have victory over the enemy. And all Saul does is sit cowardly on the sidelines, waiting for someone else to step up. 
Well, as we consider the passage this morning, first we want to recognize our great enemy. We are told in the text that Goliath has come. In the midst of this sort of battle of kings, there enters a giant in between them, Goliath. He is called the champion. Look there in verse 4, we are, the author describes him. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze. He was armed with a coat of mail. His weight, 5,000 shekels of bronze. And I know many of you, as I was reading, was, was hurriedly trying to you know, figure out what does all that mean, how heavy is all of these things. Well, 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 this is it. Summarize. Goliath, nine foot, nine inches tall. It's huge. Towered over everyone. His armor weighed 125 pounds. He was a walking tank. He, his armor, he, he was kind of like a transformer, right? He had all these different things that came out. He was outfitted with elite, elite weapons of war. He had all of this armor on, impenetrable. We're told that the tip of his spear weighed, one, weighed 15 pounds. Just the tip of the spear. Human strength, when it's extended, is often diminished. Oftentimes, if we have our hands extended out for a longer period of time with something heavy in it, we can't hold it. Even, even if it's very light, like our Bible, if we, if we were to just to take something like a book and hold it out for, a, for any extended period of time, eventually it will drop. Many, many uh, folks will uh, pride themselves on how, how much they can maybe hold up with their hand. This guy had a, just the tip of the spear, 15 pounds, that, that he was waving around, swinging and, and, and throwing at people. He would make any Navy SEAL jealous for the kind of uh, technology that he had armored on his own body. And he made the people cringe. There's no mistake, the text makes clear that this enemy was great. Yet again, God had put his people in an impossible situation. God had created a man who was so big, so towering, so massive, so strong, so muscular, that he made every human being Run in fear. And we're told in the text that that not only did the champion come out, but he challenged them to a winner-take-all fight. Challenged Israel. He says, come on, someone, come out and fight me. Goliath and the Philistines are so confident in their champion. Right? He is the heavyweight champion of the world. He is the guy who every single person that went up against him would be annihilated, would be killed. And, and so they confidently go in. If you think about this, this is a foolish attempt on the, on the part of the Philistines, unless they know for sure that they hold the, the winning hand. And for them, they did. At least that's what they thought. They thought that they had the champion, the one who would defeat these armies of Israel. Yeah, maybe they couldn't do it as a group, but they knew that this one-on-one match would give them success. And the thing I want you to see in this text is that this battle that's going on in the text, as I said uh, earlier, earlier, this this story is more about God than it is about anything else. And, and really, this story is about a battle between gods. The gods of the Philistines and the gods of Israel, or the God of Israel. When we're told that Goliath came out, 
Notice what he says in verse 8. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? In other words, Saul or Goliath here is saying, listen, you guys are nobody. Our gods are great. You, your God is not, is not true. He's not real. We are superior to you. You are just mere servants of your king. We are your masters. Verse 10, we see that the Philistine defies the ranks of Israel. Even David, in his language that he uses here, draws out this theological point that the battle here is really about God of Israel versus Dagon. You'll be reminded earlier, a a few months ago, we looked at the text where when the uh, Ark of the Covenant was taken into captivity, that God was very clear that he had sovereign authority over this so-called God, Dagon. And here in the text, what we see is this battle is being waged, a spiritual battle between God and these false gods of the Philistines because the Israelites had been convinced that the Philistine gods were greater. More than that, we see in verse 11, Saul's dismal response. When Saul and all Israel heard these word of the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Their king, rather than engaging in battle, sits on the sidelines scared to death. Afraid of this, this giant. Rather than taking up the challenge himself, Saul sits on the sidelines and says, Hey, anybody going to? Come up, I'll I'll give you money, I'll pay you off, I'll give you my own daughter, I will let your father's house be tax-free in the land. Saul is proving himself to be the king that the people did not need. In contrast, we'll see in the story that David rises to the challenge. He accepts it, he's not running in fear. All in an attempt to help us see that David is the right king. But as we think about Goliath briefly here, friend, do you recognize your great enemy? Do you recognize that this battle is a spiritual one? See, the Bible tells us that sin puts you on the side with Goliath today. So if you're tempted this morning to read yourself into this story, and I know where you are reading yourself into this story, you're going to be David. You're going to pick David. That's who I pick David. I want to be him. But friend, your rebellion against God, you're Goliath. You're on his side. You want to kill God. You want to destroy the name of God from the face of the earth. And you do that when you sin. The Bible tells us that sin is rebellion against God. You and I, when we sinfully rebel, are God's enemy. And the Bible tells us that He will prevail and have victory unless we repent and trust in Him. Paul reminds us of this truth in Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. 
Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Friends, we trust that when we rebel against God, that God's wrath, the kind of wrath that we see displayed here through David, is the wrath that awaits us for our rebellion against Him. Friends, as Christians, our trust must be in the Lord Jesus. Christ was never afraid of His enemies. You see, Christ is sort of an anti-type of Saul. While Saul's sort of sitting on the sidelines, afraid, cringing at, at the size of Goliath, we see the Lord faithfully trusting His Father in the darkest hours of trial. Friend, I wonder, do you trust that you're in a spiritual battle? This morning, do you trust that, that there's an enemy? Like he's real. He, he's not some fictitious thing that was created by Hollywood. The Bible attests so clearly. For example, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Jesus himself warned his disciples uh, in the Olivet Discourse that the enemy was coming, that he would seek to destroy him. This is what Peter appeals to when he preaches to the congregations in Asia. And he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Friend, I wonder this morning, brother, sister, do you see that the enemy is out to get you? <laughs> Maybe not literally. You know, Satan's, I think, sometimes got better things going on in his life than mess with me. But he surely has systems in place. He surely has demons in place. Surely there is evil in place. Friend, we must trust as Christians that there is a real enemy. We must recognize that the enemy would le love to see nothing more than your marriage fail. In other words, the, the enemy hates your marriage. He hates it. He wants to see your marriage crumble and fail. Why? Because the Bible says your marriage reflects the love Christ has for his bride. So your marriage crumbling, your marriage falling apart, weak and anemic, only displays that Christ is weak and anemic. Friend, the enemy doesn't want to see you faithful to Christ. The enemy, you have to understand, on Saturday night, when you're making your great plans for the Lord's Day, the enemy's there. The enemy's there. He would love to sit you, see you sitting at the park enjoying the pretty day or watching the football game or doing some other activity of leisure, maybe even sleeping, than to see you gathering with God's people. The enemy wants to destroy you. He wants to see you fall. He wants to see you rebel against God. He, he loves, he's cheering for you. He's taunting you. He's crying out to you. And I wonder as a congregation, how are we like Saul? How do we face the challenges as a congregation, as a people of God? Are we more focused on the size of our problem? Nine foot, nine inches. Or are we more focused on the God who is big, 
As we face our enemy, we must recognize that this is a part of God's purposes. So so do not hear me this morning say, what God wants you to do is flee from the enemy. No, he wants you to see that the enemy has come and that he is going to give you victory over that enemy. That he is going to give you power through the resurrection of Christ to overcome sin and Satan. That sin and Satan has been defeated. You've got to see clearly in the text that God has brought the Israelites to this point. He has created Goliath. He has put them in their midst so that they would know that he alone could say. As we've seen throughout the passage, we've seen that God puts us in trials so that he can demonstrate his power to save. See, if life is always good and everything's great and there's no, no difficulty, well, there's no need for God. There's no need to have a God if I can defeat my own enemies and I have the courage to, to get through my day. A passage like 2 Corinthians 4 makes no sense. When Paul writes, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Either way, as Christians, we must recognize that we have a great enemy. That we are in a spiritual battle. For which the enemy would like nothing more than to see us fall. Therefore, we must not take this spiritual battle lightly. We must not think that, you know, every day is just a sunny day. No, every day is a dark day. Even what is happening right now is a spiritual battle. Satan is here to snatch seeds. The seeds of the gospel that are planted, Satan would look nothing more than to take. We must move on. Secondly, as we face this great enemy, we must remember that your God is greater. You must remember that your God is greater. David is sent as an errand boy on on a few errands by his father. We're told in the text here in verse 17, or excuse me, in verse 16, that the taunting went on for 40 days. The situation has become worse and worse. And in God's providence, David is sent by his father to the battle line to deliver some supplies, uh, to gather a token, if you will, from uh, the battle line and to bring it back to his father. Some irony in the text, I think, perhaps, that he will bring a token back to his father, just not perhaps the token his father had in mind. And the narrator here calls our attention to David and his actions. In other words, when I read the text, I just want to highlight briefly what David did. Well, we're told that when David arrives on the scene, he has, the, he has all of the supplies that he's given. What he does immediately in verses 19 through 23 is to go down to the battle line to greet his brothers. See how his brothers are doing? Of course, his brothers have been away from home at least 40 days, maybe longer. We're not quite sure. The text doesn't uh, indicate how long this has gone on beyond those 40 days. And so he wants to see his brothers. He wants to greet them, see how they're doing, maybe give them a report from their father, encourage them with news, good news from home, all the kind of things that we would expect from soldiers in battle, needing to hear that glimmer of hope from home. And as David comes to the battle line, we are told that Goliath comes out again and does his customary taunting. But I want you to notice here is in verse 23. As David talked with them, behold, Goliath, the champion of Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. 
Now we're told that when Saul heard them that he was afraid and dismayed. We're even told in verse 24 that the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. What does David do? What is David's response? Well, David wants to know some questions. David has some questions. In in other words, we're, we're to understand David's questioning here as an acceptance of the Philistines' challenge. David is saying, hey, I, I want to know more about this guy. In fact, what gave David such strength and, and encouragement was verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In other words, what David does here is, again, not appeal to the man's anatomy. He's not appealing to the fact that he's uncircumcised in and of itself. Rather, what he's appealing to is the covenant promise of the circumcised. He's saying, listen, guys, he's an uncircumcised Philistine. He doesn't have the promises of God given through the patriarchs. Uh, He doesn't have the covenant promises given through Moses and ratified through circumcision. He does not have the relationship with God that we do. Who is that guy? And who is he to come up against God today? In other words, David's faith is in the power of the Lord. What was it about David that made him courageous? Was it something in him? Why did he not flinch when everyone else seemed to? Friend, what makes this text clear seems to be his knowledge of the Lord. He had a knowledge of God, but more than knowledge, he trusted in the power of the Lord. He didn't just know the Lord, he knew the Lord. He had counted the many ways God had had intervened and demonstrated power in his life before. This is why the the exhortation here is to remember your God is greater. That's what he's doing. This appeal here in the text is saying, oh, God is great. The giving of circumcision, demonstration of God's power, reminder of God's covenant power given to the people of Israel that he would be their God and they would be his people. In other words, that God was on their side. Well, anyways, we were told that David then uh, approaches Saul or, or is bring, brought to Saul. And as he approaches Saul, again, we see David appealing here to who God is. Look with me at verse 34. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep the sheep for, your, for his father. And when the, there came a lion or a bear and he took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he's deviled the, the armies of the living God. And then verse 37, here's the point. And David said, The Lord, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. In other words, David wasn't just sort of recounting all the great victories he had had. Rather, he was recounting all the great victories God had given him. All the ways God had demonstrated his power to deliver. It's so fascinating that God would take this this little shepherd boy, a runt, a nobody, in an insignificant job and prepare him for this great battle. God's providence, his ways are unknown to us. 
And even in the text we see that that Saul is foolish and, and he's confused. And while God may not give us the same victory today, maybe we don't have the stories of lions and bears that we have. Surely there are ways in our lives God has demonstrated his victory over us. God had worked through the life of David to prepare him for these kind of experiences. So this morning I wonder as a Christian, what experience do you have to remind yourself of God's power? What are their victories that God has given you perhaps over addictions? Perhaps the Lord has delivered you from a life of of sin and rebellion. As a Christian, every one of us has that great salvation in Christ that proves the power of God to break the sinner free, to break the chains of death. To trust that Christ can save us from whatever great giant that we have. And so this morning, let us encourage each other. One of the ways that we can remind one another of God's power to save is by telling others about God's victories in our own lives. Friends, take time as we gather each Lord's Day to share the ways God has given you victory over sin. How God has worked salvation in your life. Share with one another. Remind one another how great God is to encourage one another. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us. Let us Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So that's the truth. God's going to hold us fast. That's the hope we have. Well, how do we do that? Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing them. In other words, use the Lord's day as an opportunity to encourage brothers and sisters to persevere, to grow in hope, by reminding them of the victories God has given. Reminding them of the great salvation God has worked in their lives. So while the enemy is great, we begin by remembering our God is great. By meditating on the truth of God's greatness reminded that David did not turn inward to find strength, but looked to the Lord. He was reminded of who God is and what he will continue to be. Well, finally, we see, finally, we trust the Lord's power to save by resting in your Savior's victory. As we face the great enemy in our life, we must learn not only to remember our God is greater, but learn to rest, to rest. To find hope in a victory, in a battle already won. We're told in verses 41 through 44 that David goes out to face the champion, Goliath. David descends with his five smooth stones and his sling in his hand and his shepherd's hook. And as he goes forward, the champion comes and curses David. Goliath comes out as before and is shocked at the foolishness of what he sees before him. The runt, David. This little, cute little youth, this pretty-faced little boy has come to fight this warrior. David, who is this little man? 
Who's this little guy who comes out? Who's this runt who's come to fight me? More than that, we see that he begins to to not only be disdain, but, but also to curse David by his god Dagon. He begins to appeal to his god. Again, demonstrating that this was a spiritual battle. That, that Goliath understood that this was is about a, my god is bigger than your god kind of a thing. My god is more awesome than your god. That's what this battle was all about. And so he defies David. But what we see is the point of the passage comes to us in verses 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. In other words, you come to me with the elite fighting tools of the day. You come to me with your worldly wisdom and all of your strength and all of your might. You come with weapons that you have used to slaughter thousands. And all I come to you with is a name, a word. That's all I come with. I have these tools. What I really come with isn't a sling and a stone. I come to you with a name. He says to him, I come to you in the name of the God of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. You see, David hears this, this cry. And he doesn't appeal to himself, but appeals to the Lord. He appeals to the power of the Lord to deliver him from this giant. And David did not come with the strength of man, but with the name of the Lord. A name that was and proves to be the Lord himself. David represented the Lord. When, when you come in the name of somebody, you represent him. And what David is doing is representing the Lord. He's saying, I'm coming with the power of the Lord. And David points to the reason that God saves. God saves so that the nations will know that the God of Israel is the only living God. Do you find it ironic that this story is so well known? That so many lost know this story? Other than other stories? Could it be that God shares this story throughout the nations that, that the fulfillment of that verse continues even today? As we open this verse today, we ourselves are being confronted with the truth that God saves for His glory alone. That He is the one who is powerful over all the so-called gods of the world. the Philistines had defeated the Israelites, God would not have been proven to be God. But through this small victory, God demonstrates His power over the giants in our own lives. He was their Savior. David had given them victory and hope that they needed to go and fight the enemy. 
We're told in the text that once David kills Goliath, the armies of Israel march into battle and begin to fight. But we trust and know that David points to someone greater. As Alex read earlier, David's greater brother, King Jesus, would have a victory as well. God sent a clear message that day on the cross, a message that has come to us that he will win in the end. That he has sovereign authority and we should worship him for his actions. That we should stand in awe. And friend, I want you to skip this point this morning. What My takeaway for you this morning, what I want you to be clear about this story this morning is this. Jesus is David. You are not. Jesus is David, not you. In other words, what the exhortation in this text this morning is you being like David. The exhortation in this text is you rest in King David's greater brother, Jesus. That you find hope not in your ability to overcome the giants in your life. For you to find the five smooth stones and whatever those may be and you go and you fight the giants but for you to find hope in Jesus. This story, as I said at the beginning, is about God. About the God that we began our service with. The God who's contained in the Nicene Creed, the one, the Son of God. King Jesus. The greatest greatest fear of man experienced in this world is death, yet that greatest giant of all is overcome through death. Through the resurrection of Christ, Jesus proved to be the greatest victor facing the greatest giant of the world, sin and death, and he overcame. This is what we celebrate when we sing that hymn, Look ye saints, the sight is glorious. What's so glorious at looking at a bloody cross? What's so glorious at seeing a dead Savior? Look ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrow now. From the fight returned victorious, every knee to him shall bow. Hark those loud bursts of acclamation. Hark those triumphant chords. Jesus takes the highest station. Oh, what joy the sight affords. Friend, you've gathered with us this morning. If you're not a Christian, look, you, I know you have a big enemy in your life. I know that the sin in your life towers higher than a nine-foot, nine-inch giant. Your life is so dark, your soul so filled with evil that you feel as if you can never escape your own sin. But the great enemy of sin and Satan, while it may be too great for you to overcome, it is not too great. And through Jesus Christ, you can have victory. You can have the freedom that you seek. And so this morning, stop running from God. It is exhausting to rebel against God. It is exhausting to be God's enemy. Lay down your weapons, your plans, your wisdom, your purposes, and surrender to the Lord. Trust that God sent His only Son to live the life you should have. Friend, don't start, don't, 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 
Don't have your first step be, I'm going to be better this week. I'm going to be, I'm going to be good this week. I'm going to obey this week. I'm going to, no, 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 no. Not what you need to be doing. You need to trust someone came and obeyed for you. Jesus is His name. He lived a perfect life, the life you should have, and He died the death you deserve. He became Goliath. So that you could have victory over sin. Where you deserve death, Jesus died. So that if you would repent of your sins and trust in Him, you will be saved. Brothers and sisters, are you tired and weary from your great enemy? Do you gather here this morning just exhausted by your sin? Just exhausted by the temptations that the enemy has thrown at you this week? Has the, has the enemy caused you to grow discouraged and perhaps even fearful? Afraid for your own soul? Brothers and sisters, find hope. In a battle already won. Find hope in the cross. Friends, the future has already been written. This end of the story is in permanent ink. The outcome cannot be changed. Jesus has declared it is finished. The battle is over. The victor has won. Jesus wins. We must rest in the hope of the battle already won. This is what Paul encourages the saints in Philippi. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the day of completion. I am sure of it because I have confidence that there is victory. We trust the Lord's power to save from our great enemy by resting. In the Lord's victory. The battle has been won, brothers and sisters. Let's find hope there this morning. Let's recognize our great enemy. Let's not sort of disassociate ourselves and think the enemy will not touch us. But remember as we face this enemy that God is greater. And may we rest in our Savior's victory. What rest can be experienced today? What rest can you enjoy today? A rest knowing that the future is already written. I often often encourage people with the book of Revelation as they wade through those difficult passages, wonder what all these things mean. I encourage them to remember one, one truth as you read through the book. The point of the book is this. Jesus wins. That's the point of the book. If you just keep your mind focused on that, You'll come to Revelation 21 and and you will be reminded of that. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven. And the first earth passed away. And the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice with a throne saying, Behold, the dwelling a place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, this is our rest today. Our rest is to know that this is our future through Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. 
Gracious Father in heaven, we pray tonight, today, this morning, that as we, as we gather, as we consider your word, as we, in a moment, take this spiritual checkup, Lord, may we find you as greater than any enemy that we face in our life, to know that victory has been won through the cross, and that we can rest now in our Savior's Rest and know that the resurrection is our hope, eternal life. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.